Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. It's the Ancients on History Hit. I'm Tristan Hughes, your host, and in today's episode where we're talking all about a titan of ancient history, King Cyrus II, Cyrus the Great, the monarch who helped forge a world superpower in antiquity, the largest empire that the world had yet seen that would, at its height, stretch from the Indus River Valley to the borders of Europe with regions such as Macedonia and Thrace. This was the Persian Achaemenid Empire. And the story of its founder, of Cyrus, is extraordinary. Whether it's his ultimate conquest of Babylon, his unfortunate adventure into modern-day Kazakhstan, or his earlier conquests as he headed from the Persian heartlands west, ultimately marching as far as Asia Minor, as Anatolia. To talk through the story of Cyrus, well, I was delighted to interview Professor Lloyd Llewellyn-Jones from the University of Cardiff. This was the third of three episodes that Lloyd and I recorded a couple of months back. It follows hot on the heels of episodes with Lloyd about Babylon and the Bible and on Persia and the Bible. And in my opinion, this episode on Cyrus was the best of them all. And that is saying something. I really do hope you enjoy And here's Lloyd. Lloyd, always a pleasure having you on the podcast. Always a pleasure to be here. Thank you very much for having me. Now, Cyrus the Great. Uh, We're going to be running through his life story today. The greatest of all the Persian kings? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, why not? Why not? I mean, a founding father if there ever was one. And I think of such tremendous magnitude for the later Persians that his name echoed down the centuries in song and poetry. So yes, I mean, a man of just extraordinary vision and clear ability, and he must have been pure charisma uh, as well for what he achieved. You know, the Subacret the Great is bandied around quite a lot in ancient history. But here is a man who I do believe genuinely deserves it. Yeah, Cyrus the Great. Well, there we go. We've got 35 minutes to wrestle through his life, so let's do it. it. So, first of all, the sources. I mean, what types of sources do we have to learn about this figure? Okay, so we do have 
some indigenous Near Eastern sources, not necessarily Persian, however, okay, so not necessarily from Iran, although some recent archaeological work in Iran is unearthing new evidence for Cyrus, but let's get on to that later on. Majority of the sources we have are either Babylonian, very useful, we also have Hebrew, so that is in the Hebrew Bible, very useful in itself. And then, of course, we have a lot of Greek evidence, some more useful than others. None of it should be dismissed. All of it needs to be carefully sifted to look mainly at the agendas uh, behind the text themselves. What were the authors trying to get at and, and who, of course, were they aiming these, these texts at as well? So audience and author become very important here. Whether we get to a genuine Cyrus remains to be seen, but I think we can get glimpses of the real man and the motivation behind him at certain moments in the narrative. Well, there we go. Well, let's keep going, therefore, Mm. into the story itself. So the early 6th century BC, before Cyrus becomes king, what is the geopolitical situation of ancient Iran, that area of the world, when he is born? Okay, so... um, the Iranians, being this nomadic people from uh, Eurasian steppes, had moved in to the Iranian platform around about 1200 BCE. And there they had quite easily, it seems, amalgamated with indigenous peoples in the Zagros mountain area in the north and in the south. And these Iranian peoples, tribal peoples, separated into different linguistic groups. So in the north, around the Caspian Sea, we have the Medes. In the east, we have Parthian-speaking Iranians. And in the south, we have the Parsa, the Persians. And they inhabit this area, southwestern Iran. Today, it's the modern province of Fars, which borders very closely onto what was ancient Elam, a Mesopotamian civilization. And it's clear that the Elamites and the Persian tribes intermingled, possibly intermarried. And there was quite a good sort of profitable crossover between these two cultures. The area of lowland Elam going into Iran was known as Anshan. And this area of Persia was ruled by a family who descended from a a king called Tishpish or Kishpish, known to the Greeks as Tyspes. So for convenience sake, we call them the Tyspid dynasty or the Tyspid family. And really, this is a, a family of horsemen who are clearly interacting with Elamite elites, and they establish themselves as the leading tribal entity in the area of Anshan. And it's out of this, really, that the family of Cyrus the Great comes. So we know that this Tishpish had a a son called Kurush. We call him Cyrus I, but Kurush in Old Persian. He was a a military warlord. We know that he had some run-ins with people from the Zagros, but maintained his own kind of authority. After him, we have evidence of a, of a Cambyses, the Cambyses I. So we can see some family names beginning to emerge here. And then we have the birth of our Cyrus, Kurush in Old Persian, which means slaughterer of the enemy, which is not 
how we think of Cyrus very often, but I think it is right to think of him that way. And he must have been born around about 600 BCE in this area of Anshan, which becomes very important to him because in successive years, in things like the Cyrus Cylinder, this this Babylonian propaganda piece, he calls himself first and foremost king of Anshan. That, that's his most important identity, and he lists off his Tyspid predecessors as well. So they're quite clearly a, a closely knit tribe. Now then, as to his kind of birth and early years, we are really reliant on our Greek sources because we have a whole wealth of birth stories about Cyrus, which are probably more legend than fact. So let's take a few. Herodotus says he knows something like four alternative stories of Cyrus's birth, and he gives us one of them. In this, the story is that the king of the Medes, a man called Astyages, has a dream in which he sees his daughter growing vines from out of her genitals, and these vines cover the known world. And in another, even worse dream, he dreams that his daughter urinates with such force that she washes out the civilizations of the world. And his dream diviners tell him that this means that any son born to his daughter will one day overtake his throne and will rule in his place. Now, this is a, an age-old story. It's there in Greek mythology about Zeus, of course, isn't it? You know, it's, it's a typical kind of folk motif, really, of, of the idea of father or f- grandfather being displaced by the younger generation. It's, it's every man's nightmare kind of thing. If we want to give any credence to this, according to Herodotus, the daughter, a woman called Mandane, does marry this Cambyses of Persia, Cambyses I, so the son that she's going to give birth to will be half Median and half Persian. When the boy is born, he commands his chief general, a man called Hapagis, to take the baby away from his mother, to take it out into the mountains and to leave it there, to expose it to the elements. And there the baby is found by a shepherd and his wife, who's recent child, a recently born child, has conveniently just died. And so she's able to suckle the baby and bring him up. And it's only in his adolescence when they observe him playing with his friends, in which he always takes the role of of kings or warriors, that they realise that this boy, whom they call Cyrus, is in fact royal. And they take him back to his grandfather's palace and he reclaims his position on the throne and does, of course, one day indeed overthrow Astyages and claim the throne of Media. So that's one story, okay? So there we have Median blood. Cyrus is an heir of Astyages, proper heir. Okay, so then we have a story, for instance, told in Catesius. So Catesius has probably recorded indigenous Persian stories. So this story says that Cyrus was actually the son of a very, very humble Persian man of the soil and of a woman who was a goat herder, an absolute nobody, in other words. And he rises to prominence. He goes north to find his fortune and he becomes a kind of painter and decorator at the court of the king, uh, Astyages of Media. And from there is noted for his brilliance, his tact, his sensitivity, his courtliness, and is promoted to the point where he becomes adopted almost by the king of Media. 
So two very different contrasting stories, one in which he is the son of uh, you know, the Persian soil, another in which he is actually the, the true heir of media. And I think what we've got going on behind both of those, of course, is propaganda. Mm. One of them written from, possibly both from a Persian point of view, one in which, of course, Cyrus is able to claim Median descent, and the other in which he says, no, 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 I am absolutely like you, I am born of this Persian soil. There are other stories that were going on around about his birth as well, all of which have considerable propagandistic purposes, that's for sure. But I think what is important is obviously not the historicity of any of these, and in a way it doesn't matter what the reality is. For me, what is fascinating is that he was so well known that he entered into numerous songs and stories. And I suppose in a society like Persia, of course, you know, um, really where history writing in the Greek sense just doesn't exist, oral tradition is everything. And what better way of disseminating these ideas of ancestry than through song and through poetry? I mean, if you think about it, Iran has always had this very, very long poetic sing-song tradition as well. So I'm sure... Cyrus's name was perpetrated around the various tribes of Iran through this popular medium. You know, every now and then in the Greek sources, we get these hints of other popular stories that were going on. So, for instance, in Catesius, at one point, we have a story of a concubine of Astyages in media who sings about a wild boar who thrashes through the undergrowth, causing mayhem and overturning the order of the forest. And the concubine sings this story of the boar and then reveals to Astyages that the boar is in fact Cyrus. So we have, again, this kind of myth-making in which, you know, animal imagery is utilised, which goes back, back, back into the Near Eastern tradition so, so deep. So I think all of that's going on, and that's the important thing. So it's not really about, you know, where he was really born, but I think the fact that we can see that he has this longevity in legend is important. It works, I think, rather like stories of Arthur in Britain, Robin Hood, all of this kind of stuff. You know, we can say there's a maybe a time and a place that is real, but the rest is make-believe, but it's serving a current purpose. And that's the thing. Okay, so let's move on, shall we? So let's go on to his, yeah. his, his rise to the kingship then, or his yeah. early years. Yeah, so yeah. what we can say with a little bit more factual assurance is that by the time he reaches his late teens, early 20s, he was certainly the king of Anshan at this point, probably started to acquire wives at this period as well. We know that he has at least two daughters and two sons. So there's a dynasty set up quite early on in his reign. And what seems to be happening in this period is that we see the ascendancy of the Medes in the north. And they become quite a hostile group, really, to the Persians in the south. One of the things that the Median king, Astyages, does, the historical Astyages does, is to start imposing road taxes on the Persians, which means that Persians really can't move their herds to places where they need to go, traditionally have gone. And this becomes kind of intolerable for the Persians. And Cyrus's genius, I suppose, first emerges when he manages to bring together a whole consortium of different Persian tribes from across the whole of of southern Iran under his banner. And he seems to to bring them together at a particularly important place for him, a place called Pasagadai, which is about an hour's drive north of current-day Shiraz. 
seems to be his ancestral homelands there. There he raises his banner and he goes to war against the Medes, essentially. He leads an army to the north, retreats because of weather conditions, and then he sees the Medes coming down into Persia. And it's actually at the Battle of Pasargadae that he has a definitive victory over the Medes. So the Persians now are liberated of their Median oppression. And it seems highly likely at this point that Cyrus then marches north, occupies the Median capital, camp, we could say, which is Ekbatana, modern-day Hamadan, probably executes the king of the Medes at that point as well, and most importantly, therefore, inherits all of the Median territories, which by this point, around about 564, something like that, we have considerable territories stretching from the mountains around the north of the Caspian Sea, right the way across into eastern Turkey. So a huge swathe of land was being occupied by the Medes at this point. So suddenly this all falls into the hands of this, this young Persian man. And this is, I suppose, what makes him remarkable, is that he looks at this and seizes the opportunity. What does this mean for him? Well, he no longer is just a tribal leader. He's now conquered a, a major military influence in the north, and he rides to the far borders of what is considered to be Median territory in, in eastern Turkey. And then, in something quite unprecedented, he leads his Persian followers and no doubt there are some Medes in his army by this time too, across the whole of Anatolia, rough, tough riding, but these are horse masters. I mean, they're brilliant, brilliant horse riders, and crosses the Hylas River into Lydia, and his focus settles on the city of Sardis. Sardis was, without doubt, the, the most wealthy and culturally important Greek-speaking city of Asia Minor at that period. It was ruled by a king called Croesus, who, of course, in mythology becomes this, you know, well, I mean, as rich as Croesus. It's no coincidence that he's given this kind of attribute because Sardis was so wealthy. It was one of the first kind of areas where coins were being minted, for instance. So very, very wealthy indeed. And after a long siege, the city of Sardis falls to Cyrus and his men, and with that, tumble down all the other Greek-speaking city-states of the coast of Asia Minor. So we're going, you know, knocking them down like nine pins, Miletus, Halicarnassus, all of these places as well. So they all become suddenly part of an empire, which I don't think Cyrus ever saw coming, to tell you the <laughs> truth. But there it is, and he, he owns it. And he immediately goes into action about, okay, how do I control this place now then? So he sets up governors, later they become known as satraps, but at this period, I don't think we, we really hear this term, but governors certainly to stay behind and keep these places in order. And I presume, although it's not said anywhere specifically, to start demanding tribute, taxation from these conquered areas as well. Now, I suppose we might consider then Cyrus to want to go home, back to Persia to consolidate whatever's going on there. But as he's trundling back through Anatolia, of course, he comes to the the edge of the Euphrates River, and he thinks, hmm, down south from here, there lies even greater treasures. The jewel in the crown. The jewel in the crown, Babylon itself, okay? And Babylon has been the superpower for the last 70 years under the neo-Babylonian kings, um, Nebuchadnezzar II, 
it had taken a bit of a dive under Nabonidus, the last indigenous king there. And so I think Cyrus just seems to anticipate that this will be rich pickings and quite an easy target as well. And so he marches his troops down the Euphrates. And in fact, we have a lot of Babylonians from the military and from the elites who actually side with Cyrus. I think they see that a good future lies with this ruler. To make sure that the Babylonians know that he means business, he takes out a few towns on his journey down, most conspicuously the city of Opis, which is only about 50 or 60 miles north of Babylon. So a very important city. He completely destroys it, massacres all the men, sells off all the women and children, and even kills the Babylonian prince Belshazzar, which means that when he, his army approaches Babylon itself, the Babylonians simply open their gates of the city to him. So Babylon is taken without any fuss whatsoever, which is quite an achievement, because I suppose the last thing he wanted to do anyway was to destroy any of the wealth of Babylon. But I mean, if you think about what Cyrus saw there, I mean, it's completely a different world from what he was brought up in. So he's brought up in tents, in yurts, amongst horse riders. He's gone to Sardis, which has seen Greek architecture and remarkable civic layouts. But now he's in the center of the world in a city which at its time was unparalleled in, in the whole globe. I mean, there was nothing like Babylon on earth. It was a metropolis, a true metropolis, with the finest buildings, you know, the greatest temples, a huge ancient urban center. This was not the language that Cyrus spoke. He, he didn't know about these things. So, I mean, he must have been overawed by it. And yet, at the same time, he claims it. He claims it for himself. He doesn't show any weakness. He doesn't think, you know, oh, I'm an outsider here or I'm not good enough. He simply claims it. And we know about this because we have one of the most important documents from ancient history, and that's the so-called Cyrus Cylinder. Hey, I'm Don Wildman. And on American History Hit, my expert guests and I journey across the nation and through the years to uncover the stories that have made the United States. From first flight to first ladies, from stitching the star-spangled banner to striking gold in California, to shooting for the moon with Apollo, we've got you covered. Catch new episodes of American History Hit, a podcast by History Hit, every Monday and Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Join us this month on Gone Medieval from History Hit. I'm Matt Lewis. And I'm Eleanor Yanaga. This April, dive into our special miniseries. With the help of leading experts, we're tracing the foundations of England by exploring the country's most powerful Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. We'll be looking at Northumbria, Mercia and Wessex, as well as the rulers and their councils who helped shape a nation. Make sure to get every episode by listening and following Gone Medieval from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts.
Osiris cylinder. It's this really unprepossessing lump of clay, dried clay. It doesn't look much to look at, but what it says is remarkable. Part of it is written in Cyrus's own words, so he's speaking his own history, and in which, of course, he, he says that the god Marduk, the supreme god of the Babylonian pantheon, called him by name, held him by the hand, and welcomed him into Babylon. So clearly, Cyrus has got the Babylonian priesthood working for him at this point, in which his propaganda is stressing that he is the heir to the throne of Babylon, and that, of course, he is a champion of the god Marduk as well. So it's a very pragmatic way in which he does this. Very interesting to see the titles and names that he gives for himself in the Cyrus Cylinder. So while he says he calls himself the king of Anshan, so we're harking back to that ancestry of his in Iran, he is also very keen on the title king of the four quarters of the world, which is the traditional way in which the Babylonian and Assyrian kings had called themselves too. Uh, and also straight away, it's, it's really interesting to see how Cyrus suddenly becomes aware of his place in history as well. He talks about repairing the walls of Babylon, which had been broken down. And he says that when he was doing this, he came across an inscription, another cylinder, which had belonged to a king who came before me, and his name was Ashurbanipal. So he must have been, you know, obviously this is a man who was probably illiterate. And so the scribes must have read this out to him. And suddenly Cyrus gets this idea of, of where he sits in his own history, which I think is really, really quite fabulous. Now then, there's there's another detail in the Cyrus Cylinder, which is often overlooked. It says that Cyrus restores the walls of Babylon, restores the great festivals of the city as well, which is important. And then right at the end, where the text begins to be eroded and and finally wears off, a very um, fragmentary section talks about how about a year after the liberation of the city, as he would put it, the conquest, he and his son, Cambyses, appear in the temple of Marduk, right in the city centre. And he says very specifically that they were wearing Elamite dress. Okay, So the Elamites, of course, were part of this world of, of the ancient Iranians. And the Elamites had long been the absolute enemies of the Babylonians. So there is Cambyses, the, the prince, and Cyrus, the king, wearing this very conspicuous foreign costume while propitiating the chief god of the Babylonian pantheon in his cult center in the heart of Babylon. I think it must have been like, I don't know, something like, you know, Lord Curzon, the viceroy of India, wearing his full, you know, military kit, full-on 1880s military kit, and going to a Hindu temple or something. I mean, you, you could not but read this as something which was colonial. I mean, that's, that's what's going on. I think this is what Cyrus does. So, you know, it's not all sugar and uh, sugar at all. I mean, there's, there's a, a kind of quite tricky element to, to some of this. What we do know is that Cyrus returns to Iran after this quite a long sojourn in uh, Babylon, and he leaves his son, Cambyses, behind as the kind of viceroy of Babylon, so that the Persian presence is absolutely fixed at that period. Of Equal interest, I think, is the idea that when we look at the vast amount of documentation that exists from the late Neo-Babylonian into the early Persian period in Babylon, we have tax returns, receipts, accounts from different firms. 
we don't get any sense of disturbance or upset, which suggests to me that the Persians didn't come in and change the system. They simply worked within the system that was already existing. And that tends to be, by and large, the way in which the Persians operated for the whole of their imperial history. And I should say as well that with, of course, the, the fall of Babylon also came to Cyrus all of Babylon's former empire, which included Syria and modern-day Lebanon, Israel, Palestine, that whole swathe of land becomes part of his as well. What we see when Cyrus returns to Iran after all this time, where he must have been hailed as, well, I mean, the greatest hero yes, ever. I mean, how absolutely. could they possibly conceive of what had gone on here? You know, I mean, he begins building... And there are two sites on which he builds. The first is very well known, and it goes back to this place, Pasargadai, which I mentioned earlier on. So his tribal homeland. He now begins to make it into a kind of royal centre. I suppose we could say an imperial centre. He builds several stone pavilions there. And this is the first ever stone structures that we see in central Iran. Everything before, of course, had been tents, but now there's a kind of square or oblong palaces, kind of garden pavilions, really. Not, not huge, but, you know, impressive in their own way, with columned porticos that run around them. So very Greek in some respects. And in fact, we can tell that Greeks were present at Pasargadai building these things. We can see, we know the Greek styles too well. These are definitely built by, by Greeks. Whether these are war captives or people who came willingly, we simply don't know. And around these small pavilions, he also builds a, an entranceway, so there's a monumental gateway. The only thing that remains of it now is one standing wall, which depicts this really quite remarkable sort of genie image, or a kind of, the Assyrians or Babylonians would have called it an apkalu, so a kind of talisman, a good figure, a guardian figure, with these kind of four wings that come out of him. Clearly Babylonian inspiration, but wearing on his head an Egyptian-style crown. So it's really amazing to see that kind of art being employed very early on. But the glory of Pasargadai is actually its gardens. So Cyrus created at Pasargadai the first paradisos, oh, as the Greeks are called, the first paradise garden. And it was a what has become known as the classic Chahabag, so the four-quarter garden, to echo, I think, the idea of the four quarters of the universe. And you can still see it today when you go to the site. It has incredible, elegant water channels, beautifully lined with brick, stone, and fountains as well, all the way around it. So it must have just been gorgeous. And we know that it was planted with cypress trees and with actually flora from all over his empire. So it became a kind of empire in miniature, if you like. And, you know, because the Persians were these kind of nomadic peoples, it's really, I think, appropriate to imagine Cyrus sitting there, passing his laws and giving judgment, sitting under an awning at the portico of one of these stone buildings, and yet still being in the, the open air of the garden as well. It really beautifully sort of straddles these buildings, the outdoor and the indoor space. The other thing he builds at this location is his tomb, mm. which I presume he must have started quite early on in his reign, you know. And that's really fascinating too, because it's, it's on a kind of brick stone pediment with about four steps, four or five steps to it, which is very much like a ziggurat. But then the tomb chamber itself is a kind of a vaulted barrel roof 
which is typical of the kind of tombs that one would find in 6th century Asia Minor. So it seems that he is commissioning his architects to create things which are a, a mashup, I suppose we would say, of different international styles and bringing them back to Persia. For the, the first time they would have seen anything like this. So quite remarkable. But the, the most fascinating thing, I think, which has come up to light in the last 10 years of archaeology in Iran is happening at the city of Persepolis. Right. Now, we used to think that Persepolis was the brainchild of Darius the Great, started around about 518, but now we can push it back to Cyrus's time because Italian and Iranian archaeological teams have discovered at a place called Tol el Arjuri, which means the, the mound of bricks, masses and masses of evidence for a construction of Cyrus the Great. And what's coming out of the ground is a huge gateway, a massive monumental gateway, covered in blue glazed brick with dragons and bulls, exactly like the gate of Ishtar that we found at Babylon. And there's one brick which even has the title Sharu in Babylonian on it, which means king. So it looks as though the ambition of Cyrus was actually to create a new Babylon in Iran. And maybe, you know, his untimely death ended that dream, we don't know. But certainly the, the archaeology reveals that the gateway was systematically demolished, probably by Darius, who then quite ostentatiously built a 30-metre platform above the area of the gateway, which would have meant he literally looked down on his predecessor's ambitions for building, which says quite a lot, doesn't it, about the nature of the relationship between Darius and Cyrus, perhaps. So that is one of the most remarkable things that's come out of the archaeology. I mean, you know, and we don't have that kind of evidence anywhere else. You know, it's only what is coming out of the ground. So I think that's really remarkable. Beyond that, our attention then really only turns to the, to the last years of Cyrus's life, which is a great shame because we don't know really anything about his policies or what his aims were. You know, how did he rule Persia and his empire, we, we get nothing really. Well, um, I was just going to maybe ask about his wife or anything. Did people know about her at all? Or? Well, we know that his wife died in the time that he was in Babylon, actually. And we know that because a year's mourning was decreed. Right. Yes, but, but we know of nothing else huh. at all. So two of his daughters, certainly, we, we know their names. One is Atossa, known to the Greeks as Atossa, and his other daughter, Atistani. They are known in Old Persian by their proper names, Udusha and Ishtatuna, and they figure prominently in the reigns of Darius the Great. Not in Cyrus's reign, but in, Cyrus, in Darius the Great's name, because he married both of them as the heirs, as the, as the daughters of Cyrus. They became very important to him. But we also know that Cyrus has two sons. So we have Cambyses, who, of course, is the eldest, and he's in Babylon as the regent. But we also have another one called Bardia, in some of the Greek texts, he's known by the title Tanoxeres, which actually is probably his nickname, and it means strong-armed. And there are stories which, which say that he was a, an exemplary bowman. So that's there. Now, we need to jump then. We, we don't have these, the, any evidence of what he's doing as a ruler of these lands. 
And the next stories that we have, again, we're going back to the realm of legend, really, mm. are the stories about his death. Well, I mean, because he did mention earlier his untimely end, Lloyd. So yeah. let's, let's focus in on the stories around his death. So there's one story, Herodotus, in which he uh, goes over to the east to fight these kind of barbaric, nomadic peoples there. And he meets his end at the hands of a formidable queen called Terimis, who manages to take his head, dips it in a pail of blood, all of this. We have another story from Xenophon in which he dies comfortably at home in bed with his two sons at his side. Now, clearly, Cyrus couldn't have died on the battlefield and at home in bed. So I suggest that what we got going on with Cyrus's death stories is another series of propaganda myths which, which were doing the rounds as well. Interestingly, in the, the great Persian epic, Shahnameh, the Book of Kings, which dates to the early medieval period, there are reminiscences of Cyrus the Great. He was such a, a major figure. He is known in Shahnameh by the name Keikurush or Keikorosh. And there, when he dies, this character, based on Cyrus, doesn't have a normal ending at all. Instead, he ascends into heaven, godlike. He just ascends into heaven instead. So I think all of these were part of a rich culture of death around this great figure as well. Summing him up, I think he must have been a brilliant tactician, a brilliant leader of an army, an, an incredibly charismatic individual. He must have been. To, to take troops with him to the ends of the earth where, where they didn't really know where they were going or what they were doing in the first place. He was also really astute, it seems. He was a very good self-promoter. He understood the power of propaganda, the power of working with different types of peoples as well. It's quite clear that he could be generous. Um, he releases the Jews and others from captivity in Babylon, for instance. But of course, he could be absolutely bloodthirsty and cruel as well. I don't want us to whitewash him in that way. You know, what he did at Opus and other city sites it was horrific. And let's not forget, empires are not made through negotiation and hand-holding and goodwill. They, are, they, they come about through, you know, square-jawed soldiers doing really horrific things to, to local populations. And Cyrus was responsible for that and, and main, upheld, maintained, and in fact kick-started the whole system for the Persians. And yet there is something about him which is still quite enlightened, in my opinion as well, you know, we have these stories in the Alexander historians of, of Alexander the Great going around with yes. copies of the Iliad and sleeping with them under his pillow and thinking that Achilles was the greatest thing. That's part of the myth-making of, you know, the Alexander historians. I think that if anybody Alexander admired, it was actually Cyrus, because I really think he models himself on Cyrus. The the entry into Babylon, for instance, is is Cyrus's entry into Babylon. You know, he really he really seems to mould himself in the guise of this man that he clearly knew a lot about. The Greeks were fixated on Cyrus. You know, Xenophon's Chiropedia, while it's purporting to be about Cyrus II, is, is of course you know it's a paean really to what a balanced good king can be. So even the Greeks were willing to overlook the darker side of him, to portray him in a, in a really remarkably generous light. Whereas in the Hebrew Bible, he gets the greatest accolade of all because God, the Hebrew God, calls him my anointed, Messiah, Messiah. I mean, that is the loftiest of lofty titles you can get. And the ultimate was homage to this man who was, who was simply 
out of his league, ahead of his time. Out of his league, ahead of his time. And of course, Alexander supposedely visited his tomb as well. Yes, precisely, he? precisely. Yeah, absolutely. There's a bit of a cry there as well, I think. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Lloyd, it's always so fascinating listening to you talk all things ancient Persia. You've come back on the podcast to explain Cyrus in 35, 40 minutes. You've done a great <laughs> job of bad, it. It's not bad, is it? Not bad at going. all. So it just goes me to say thank you so much for taking the time to come back on the podcast. Oh, you're very welcome. Anytime. Well, there you go. There was Professor Lloyd Llewellyn-Jones talking you through the story of King Cyrus the Great, founder of the Persian Achaemenid Empire. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Now, last things from me, you know what I'm going to say, but if you have been enjoying the Ancients recently and you want to help us out as we continue our infinite mission to share these incredible stories from our distant past with you and with as many people as possible, well, if you want to help us out, you can just leave us a lovely rating on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts from. It really helps us as we continue to grow the Ancients. But that's enough from me, and I will see you in the next episode. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Ancients. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget, you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code ANCIENTS at checkout.